I love the way the First Gen Lounge makes me feel. Because it creates a space where I belong, where we're able to create community. The fact that it's a community. It's a safe place. It also gives me a place to understand different perspectives. The stories of these individuals prescribe transformational perspective. I receive encouragement, enlightenment, empowerment. And also serve as a catalyst to just keep going. Where we're able to be our true selves. I'm allowed to be an unapologetic first gen. And above all else, tell our story. And every episode is unique. I love it. I'm your host, Dr. Eve, and I'd like to welcome you to the First Gen Lounge. Okay, folks. Oh, man, it's really refreshing to be in this space on today. You know, I don't have to say the dirty word that starts with the C, and I'm not going to do it because I'm definitely trying to not, again, make it a point of conversation for all things, although I'm talking about it with friends. But I definitely say it's nice to have the good company of this very, very brilliant gentleman who is a California native, Antonio Ingram. Did I say Ingram right? Ingram right? Yeah, Ingram. Yeah, because I was somebody like Ingram. I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't want to say the name wrong. I was like, Ingram. <laughs> Antonio, so, so, so glad to have you here. Like, I am so in awe of who you are. I know it's a uh-huh. but I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, you're getting it. So, <laughs> if you will, tell the wonderful family, you know, who you are. Who is Antonio? So... I grew up in Los Angeles in a single-parent home. I went to high school in South Central, specifically the Watts area of South Central. You know, it's funny, most people hear about Teach for America once they get to college and are looking at sort of postgraduate opportunities. I found out about Teach for America in high school because my high school is actually a Teach for America site. And so I had friends in high school who were literally Teach for America teachers. So that kind of showed you sort of the educational economic background that I came from. And then, by the grace of God, I got to Yale for undergrad, where I majored in religious studies, with a focus on Latin America, culture, and spirituality. And then afterwards, I went to UC Berkeley School of Law, where I got my JD. After law school, I started out my career at a law firm called Morrison Forrester, doing sort of general business litigation for about a year and a half. And then I received a federal judicial clerkship. So I moved to New Orleans, Louisiana for a year to work for a federal judge. And after that experience, I received a public policy Fulbright. And so I moved to Malawi to work in the prosecution department at the Malawi Anti-Corruption Bureau. After 10 months in Africa, I came back to the United States and moved to Richmond, Virginia to work for Chief Judge Gregory on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the federal court in charge of the states of Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, and North and South Carolina. And after that year experience, I recently moved back last October to the Bay Area while I'm working at the international law firm of Boyd Schiller Flexner in their San Francisco office doing general litigation again. Mm, and see, <laughs> what I told you, I'm in all of you. See, now y'all see what I mean. Because where'd you, where, where were you born and raised again? South Central, Los Angeles. Mm. And went to Yale to get your undergraduate degree. <laughs> Turned around and went to Berkeley to get your Juris Doctorate. And you've been to how many countries? You you missed that part. How many countries have you oh, been to? I've been to 30 countries. 
And I'm 30 this year. I turned 30 last year, so 30 by 30. Oh, that is so cool. I I love that one. Oh my goodness. I I love that one. I made a a 30 for 30 list and probably got through like 15 things. But hey, the intention was there. That is, listen, wow. And I say wow because there's somebody who's listening who needs to be reminded that it does not matter where you come from. If there is something in you and you want to go out there in life and get it, you'll go get it and you'll find a way. Um, what fascinates me is that you chose to go to the Ivies, right? Yeah. What even led you to consider or even think that that was something that you could do? Because I want to say people like us, not to say everybody, but some people like some. Let me say some people like us. Then we tend to not even know that opportunities exist or even think about these schools, and yet alone believe we're qualified to go. Yeah, it's super interesting to think back at what sort of deposit I inherited to make me even envision attending Yale. I think on a superficial level, I was first exposed to Yale in late middle school, early high school, through the television show, it was a little bit embarrassing, Gilmore Girls. It's a good show, it's a good show, it's a good show. And I was like, oh, that seems like a fun school. And I think after I heard about it, I like Googled it, and I was like, oh, this sounds like a great opportunity. And it was actually pretty interesting. Once I got that sort of idea in my heart, it like never went away. So one thing I didn't mention is that when I was in high school, there was this program at the time called UC Berkeley Pre-Collegiate Academy. And so what they would do, they would take one high school kid per 22 LAUSD schools and some of the UC Berkeley for a residential program the summer after your sophomore year of high school. And then the summer after your junior year, they would bring you back for about a week and help you with college applications and stuff like that. And so my first day of this residential program where everyone is like black and brown and lower income, I'm walking around UC Berkeley, you know, like the number one public school in the world. And I'm looking at it and I say to everyone, even though I should in the retrospect, this is nice, but I want to go to Yale. And so you that didn't go over well. <laughs> They're like, so I mean, you know who you want, right? Be happy you're here. And I was like, <laughs> you don't know who I am, do you? Like, <laughs> confidence is key. Confidence is key, my friend. That is fun. That is funny. And again, like you said, here you are, somebody who came from a background that's like, who do you think you are? And it's like, I'm, you don't know who I am. And look at you now, right? Exactly. Man. And so for me, it was kind of like after that, then I got into this program called College Match, which was founded by like a former Clinton high level education department individual. And it took sort of inner city kids and gave us SAT prep and even gave us a college tour. And so I got to tour Yale, all expense paid as a junior in college. And then again, I fell over the campus. And so when I applied to law school or to undergrad, it was funny. I had this lot of Ivies, but for me, it was very much like a personal choice. So of the Ivies I visited, I only applied to Dartmouth and Yale. I didn't want to go to Harvard or Princeton or equivalent schools like Stanford or MIT. Like, for me, it was really much about fit. And so, yeah, I wasn't like, you know, they have those kids who apply to like nine. I was to all nine. Like, that was not my goal. It was like, I just like this one school. Hopefully, the door opens. <laughs> yeah, I, I told Berkeley a long time ago that <laughs> this ain't this ain't it. Yeah, that's fun. But then it, for you to have gotten back around to, to getting to UC Berkeley, after all, it's just really interesting. <laughs> How was that to actually go back then? So they were like, oh, well, I'm back now. I'm ready. 
Well, it was interesting. So this is especially, I think, true for undergrads. I think for law school and rest a little bit different. But for me as a first-gen professional and college grad, going to UC Berkeley as an undergrad probably would have been a bad experience for me because I just knew I needed more support than a large state school could give me. Berkeley's like amazing, but the lectures are still like two and three hundred people. Whereas at Yale, I was in classes with seven people sometimes. There was no way really to follow through the cracks. You literally had to give your schedule in person to an advisor every semester to approve your classes and make sure you're on track to graduate in four years. There's just a level of hand-holding that like an undergraduate institution such as an Ivy like Yale could give me that is the first gen I needed versus like, I don't, my kids can go to Berkeley and be successful because they will need less support than I did going to college, right? And so for me, going to grad school at the UC system was very different because at that point, I had matured academically in, in terms of like knowing how to navigate these spaces. And so at that point, by all means, I go to a big school, large institution. Then again, Berkeley Law was only 250 people per class. And so mm-hmm. still relatively small compared to some other schools I was looking at. I really love that you mentioned the idea of fit so that people don't get so caught up in thinking about what ideal is. Like, oh, because bigger is better, a bigger school would be a better fit, bigger classes. But the idea, like you're saying, hey, this is what I need. I need a little bit more intimate of a space. Because not only is that important in, you know, going to undergraduate, going to college or what have you, it's important in grad school, but also in being a professional. Thinking about what it means to work at a, you want to be in a big corporation where there's tens of thousands of people or somewhere where there's a couple of hundred, you know, but again, you have a more sense of the community. So thank you for bringing that part up. Speaking of which, let's talk about, you know, even thinking about law school in your journey. I mean, what was that like for you being first gen? Because again, you play no games at all. Like you're like, I'm here <laughs> and I'm about to do my thing. Watch me work. So I think it was funny. I wrote about in so many ways of personal statements, applying to colleges about becoming a lawyer in the future. And I got to Yale, and my first two years was like pretty much just like trying to survive. It was kind of hard to think about like the future in that sense. And so I think I took like one constitutional law class while I was a sophomore. But aside from that, I was focused on my major and things like that. But I think what really changed it for me, and this goes back to social capital, Yale had this interesting program called the Yale Alumni Association Community Service Fellowship. And so what they would do is that they would give you a small stipend and partner you with a nonprofit organization and you would get room and board through living with a Yale alumni family. And hmm. so I spent a summer in Boston living in a guest house of an affluent white family who both were Ivy League grads and the mom was a lawyer who went to Yale for undergrad and the husband was a lawyer at a big law firm. And so living with sort of two lawyer family was just like a very enriching experience for me being a first-generation professional to actually see the day-to-day of what their lives look like, what their jobs consisted of, the wife working in government, the dad in the private sector. And for me, that kind of like re-exposed me, re-inspired me to like, hey, I can do this. Like, I want to go to law school. I now have people who can provide me with like social capital and support. And so then junior year, I hit the ground running, took the LSAT, and then did my applications that next fall. Wow. So what was the most challenging part of navigating law school for you? And what did you do to overcome some of those challenges? So one of the hardest parts about law school is that they kind of hide the ball from you when you get there. Like an undergrad, you can kind of learn how to sort of be successful 
doing a little bit of what you did in high school, but just more sort of refined. Like for example, in undergrad, oftentimes your job is to like memorize and regurgitate and maybe add nuance to what you learn, but you're kind of reproducing information that you learn. Whereas in law school, basically, and I wish someone had told me this when I was a first year, you read cases in which you look at these fact patterns to derive rules, and then you memorize the rules, and then you take exams in which the professor writes a fact pattern, and based on the facts in that paragraph, it should trigger memories of rules that you're going to apply. And the exams at the highest points are those people who can look at the fact pattern and mention as many rules as possible and nuances of how the rules apply. But nobody ever tells you that. So you get to law school and reading cases every day and you kind of understand there's rules being discussed, but they never give you like a rule statement explicitly. And then you get to the final exam, which is your entire grade, and you're supposed to do that process. And so for me, it was like learning how to take a law school exam because undergrad was very different in that sense. There wasn't really this sort of like application-based analysis without clear directives. And in what ways did you go about building community to also help you get through such a time? Yeah, to me, it really entailed leaning on your peers. Oftentimes people in my class had parents who were lawyers or were just more exposed to their prior work experience. Because keep in mind, I went straight from Yale to Berkeley Law, which I think some people don't feel comfortable going straight to law school after undergrad. But for me, it kind of stemmed back to my first-generation status. Like, you know, oftentimes in first-gen families, like, you may have obligations that arise, and I just wanted to get my degree before anything came up that would prevent me from finishing it. And I think that's a, a thing that we have to think about sometime in ways that our affluent and non-first-gen peers don't have the time to play as much. But yeah, so for me, it was leaning on people who had work experience and, and legal experience that could help sort of teach me and sort of a lot of the learning in law school is through your peers and also going to office hours. I mean, I went to office hours a lot in undergrad, but law school, of course, is more intimidating because of structure of the classes, pushing to rely on these same professors for letters of recommendation and references. And so for me, it was like being bold and like, oh, I didn't understand something, like not being afraid to go ask a professor. Because again, they're not really doing you any favors. They're getting paid to be a resource for you. And I think sometimes as first-gen professionals, we kind of feel like, oh, we don't want to impose on these people. Whereas, no, like there's a system in place and this is their role and we have a role too. And our role is to ask questions and do the best we can. Hmm, I love that. I love that. I um, had a thought just now as you were speaking, and I wonder and if it's something that you can answer, you know, it'd be really awesome because it's one of those, this just came out of nowhere question. Mm -hmm. Thinking about your experience with that particular family um, when you had the living situation, yep. in what ways did that help shape how you were able to navigate your experience as a law student? Because it's a very interesting and very unique experience. A lot of people don't have an opportunity to even sharing and I'm thinking that was really impactful because it was deeper than just an internship it was a lifestyle that you got to learn as mm -hmm. well yeah to me it really did sort of socialize me in many ways mm. and, and what was very frustrating and this kind of extends past law school about the legal profession is that when we apply for jobs for example even at the most corporate elite jobs they look at mainly the schools you went to that's like the threshold oftentimes and then the interviews are non-substantive. And so you sit there and people who study implicit bias have like field days with disciple stuff. 
they just talk to you about like, oh, what'd you do last summer for fun? Or like, what are your hobbies? Or what's your favorite class? Or what are you passionate about? It's all things that are very much like stemming from having certain experiences of social capital. Mm. I know in one of my interviews, I talked about with a partner who was this older white gentleman from a foreign background about going to Harvard Yale football game and that type of dynamic. And so if you don't have these experiences that you can use as social capital, those interviews like don't typically go well, especially because there's no sort of like writing assignment or like analytical assignments. You know, with, for example, consulting, they actually make you do substantive things to get these jobs at McKinsey, et cetera. But for legal profession, they don't. And so for me, living with that family really did expose me, for example, to how to pronounce these law firm names that I wouldn't have known otherwise. And like what it takes to be a good litigator and sort of like how to balance like family and career and be able to discuss that with people. And so for me, it was very formative going from a, a family with no professionals to living with two professionals and even having them encourage me in many ways about pursuing law and knowing that like, having the support of these individuals help cut away imposter syndrome and other things that first generation mm. professionals tend to carry. Mm, that is powerful because modeling matters. Mm-hmm. And you had models. And in spite of the race, gender, cultural, socioeconomic thing, the modeling, the having the access to is is what has made such a profound difference. So it sounds like to me for you and your experience and in your career trajectory, yeah, which is very, uh, very meaningful. You brought up social capital. So for the person who's listening, who may be considering law school or, you know, may know a little bit about it, but not much. Can you tell us what social capital is? Yeah, social capital to me is sort of the experiences and knowledge that one carries that allows them to either assimilate or successfully integrate into spaces with ease. And so social capital oftentimes has a culture and class nexus, at least in the professional spaces such as law, which kind of revolves around have you traveled to certain places? Have you been to certain institutions? And I think the reason why social capital exists in that way is that oftentimes, given that, you know, legal interviews aren't substantive, they're more personality-based and social-based, the interviewer wants to see themselves in you. And the more sort of data points and experiences that you can use for commonality, it helps. One thing I think about at my current job, the hiring partner she also went to Yale undergrad in Berkeley Law. Hmm. And so I think that's like not coincidence. <laughs> I think there is a level of social capital that when she's looking at my resume out of thousands of other resumes, that she's like, oh, I went to these schools and I'm intelligent. He probably is too. And I think that there's many ways of demonstrating that for some people it's travel, for some people it's sports or certain hobbies. I, I know it's really funny. I was talking to a, a lawyer a couple years ago who was working for an appellate judge in Sacramento. And, you know, getting these appellate judge clerkships in California are especially competitive. And I asked him, like, what made you stand out? How'd you get this job? And he's like, well, I used to sing in choir growing up and the judge liked people who like sung. And I was Hmm. like, interesting. So even little things that aren't always necessarily like economic or experiential can also be social capital. Mm, 
so what do you say to someone who wants these experiences but doesn't even know where to start with getting access to them to the people to you know financially to be able to travel and do things how then could they navigate what advice do you have for them i think um depending on your college experience or your work culture just talking to your peers honestly there's so many things i like both my best friends in college were the children of professionals who were not on financial aid. And like, I learned so much of those friendships to the point where I can like talk about things I had a personal experience because my best friends had and had explained them sufficiently. And so I think there's a level of like social integration you can have with people who are more privileged than you or have different life experiences than you that can also be used to inform your worldview in a way that I think lends itself to foster social capital even if you don't have the same resources or the same opportunities as those people do. I love that. And for so many reasons, because we can be intimidated when we come from backgrounds where others have more and we think that we're not good enough to be in those people's presence sometimes. But Mm -hmm. that's not true, because like you said, and I have said it to several students that I've talked to over time, that at the end of the day, you have an advantage by being exposed to individuals who have different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. When I was in college, my roommate, who is the best, like one of the best people I've ever known, came from a different social class than what I did. But what she used to tell me about life and thinking about things really transformed how I approach certain things in the future. For example, we were talking about cars one day because she had gotten a new car. And I was like, you know, why just not buy something that's older? You just pay it off. And her thing was, well, it's better to have a car payment and have a newer car that's dependable than to have an older car where you always have to put money into it because something is wrong with it. Mm. And never had I ever thought about something like that because where I'd come from, if you can get the car and pay for the car, you pay for it. You get what you can versus, oh, well, I know I may have an expense, but I know that I have a lot less maintenance and I'm it's far more reliable. So the yeah. first time that I purchased a car for myself, I made it a point to go out and get a car with a payment, something that I could afford, but something that was also newer. So I didn't have to, you know, put myself in position to this fall apart, that this break, you know, because you end up sometimes putting more money into it than you do a Mm -hmm. car payment. So valuable lesson learned. But again, it comes from exposure and I have carried that with me forever. So when I think about investing in things, I think about retirement, I think about business or anything, my mindset typically goes to who may be in a better position than I am or have different experiences who can teach me things. So I love, love, love what you say about social capital because it is it is vital and but we also have to feel worthy of being in the space as well. So right. I love that. So thinking of, you know, back on all of your experiences and especially that you are a grown man man now, you know, <laughs> what would you say are three things that you've learned, you know, in life, you know, personally and or professionally that you think are important for other people to know, uh, especially those who are going to take a similar path as you by going to school or law schools and then thinking about, you know, pursuing a career in the law profession, because it is it's a protective space, you know, like the medical profession, like education. We're not in it just because we think it's fun. I mean, yeah, it's fun for those of us who take the path we do, but mm-hmm. we have to be the gatekeepers as well. Yeah. But again, with all of that, though, what are things that you wish you'd known? Things you just wish you'd tell somebody else to be on the lookout for? Just that wisdom, because you the man. You are the man to me, I told you. So I was like, you know, I love it. 30 and 30 countries, like, come on, friend. And, had, you know, 
the look had the like I almost said it had the dirty word not come up. I'm pretty sure you'd be at sixty by now. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so for me, I think one of the things that I, I found to be the most helpful in my career thus far is to honestly like have humility. And I think what I mean by that is to not be afraid to ask for help. I feel like first generation professionals Typically, we've had to work hard to be independent to get to where we are because we haven't had the same resources as our peers. But at a certain point, that has to end and you have to learn how to be dependent like your peers are dependent on structures and, and resources. And so for me, when I was in college, when I was in law school, I was the first one to say, I don't know, I need assistance. And whether or not people thought I was unintelligent or whether or not people thought I was less than because I was vulnerable, at the end of the day, like, I knew I needed to get skills and learn knowledge and gain material that would help me in the long run. And so those short-term perceptions always were outweighed by long-term sort of cultivation and maturation of, like, my professional and sort of educational experience. And so I think, for, yeah, just, like, not being afraid to look foolish in the short-term to really understand in the long-term something in a deep and substantive way. And then... A second thing I would recommend is to not be afraid to take risks. Even though I'm at this point only six years of law school, I have a lot of friends who are like deeply unhappy in their careers, mm. who may even regret going to law school. And this is first-gen and non-first-gen friends. And part of it is that people have chosen to pursue either career opportunities in ways that were based on third-party expectations versus their true passions. And so they end up in jobs they don't like or they end up doing things that, you know, on paper look great, but don't really give them life. And for example, one thing is that, you know, I did the two federal clerkships and in between that, I did a Fulbright. But I also had an offer to go back to a law firm for that period. And so I turned down a six-figure salary to move to Africa and make like what was under minimum wage in the United States. Mm. And so for me, it was like, yeah, this is the risk. Like, I'm not affluent. I don't come from a family that has a safety net or means. But that experience was the most transformative and pivotal one that I've had thus far. And I know it's going to give me dividends in the future in a way that that six-figure job for that season will not have. But again, after risk, a lot of my colleagues would not have taken. And, I, and it's hard because this is true for a lot of lawyers, but also first-gen people. We're more afraid of being poor than we are being unhappy. Ooh, um, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Say that again. Say that again. We are, we are more afraid of being poor than we are of being unhappy. Mm. And so when I look at decisions, I think about it for a second. Now, so it's also like, I like went to school for too long and have worked too hard to do things that don't give me life. Yes. And so I think for me, like always trying to keep, you know, your values and your integrity intact as you're going through these spaces because at the end of the day like who cares if you have lots of money but you're just like deeply discontent like that's not my portion and that's not sort of what my family like encouraged me to do or to work hard for and i'll say the third thing would be to be confident in knowing that you belong in these spaces i think so many of us feel like we we barely got there or it was a mistake or we're not fully equipped for being successful in these spaces. 
But what's hilarious is that once you get these spaces, you look around, and I can say this at both Yale and Berkeley, there are people from my, like, Teach America High School who are way more intelligent than my peers in these spaces. They just didn't have the opportunity. And so you look around and say, no, like, these spaces would be filled with people like us, but for systemic issues that are keeping us out. And so when you look at that perspective, it, it gives you sort of a resiliency. I remember doing a California bar exam, which, you know, notoriously hard to pass. A lot of my peers were like freaking out saying, I've never been this stressed before. I've never had to deal with something this, this, this complicated or, or intense before. And I laughed. I was like, growing up court was way more stressful than this exam. <laughs> like, this is not that bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it's that perspective, that grit, that tenacity that we've inherited from our circumstances that is our fuel, right? And our, and our sort of propeller into these spaces of influence and success. And I think that, like, instead of looking at our backgrounds as liabilities, we need to look at them as assets because they are, even though those around us sometimes don't want us to view them as such. Mm, you just drop all the jewels. <laughs> just all this drop, drop, drop. I'm enjoy. I'm really, really enjoying it, especially the the concept of doing what makes you happy, because there is this misconception within our community that to redeem ourselves from the hardship that we've had in life, especially when we're first gen low income from single parent homes, you get it that we have to have more money, but more mm-hmm. money isn't necessarily it. It's having more experiences and doing the things that you truly enjoy. And mm-hmm. I couldn't have said that better. I, so I felt that. That's why I'm like, say it again, because I felt that. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that truth and and for being able to say to say it from your position because you've lived it. And I think there's power in being able to live something and then saying it. And you living it saying, I went to Africa and made less than American minimum wage. Uh, anybody got time for that? <laughs> you know, like nobody <laughs> people like, I'm not about to do that because, oh, but what if my career doesn't get back on track? But for you, you're like, I know I'm destined for something greater. And mm. this is just a part of the experience for me. So I'm going to do it anyway, because wherever I'm supposed to land, that's where I'll land. So thank you for your confidence and for living that truth for other people to be willing to maybe even step away from the office. Not a good fit. And if they're yeah. not happy to go find their thing, because I hate that we suffer behind trying to, like you said, live up to the third party expectations, man. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, look, you look, you got me stuck on that. I, I love a good powerful talk. <laughs> I love it. So it's like this is all in my element right now. So just, you know, curious as we're still thinking about just honoring our truth and, you know, growth and development and, and just living out our lives out loud. What are some mm-hmm. of the things that you're currently doing or even have done to just continue to grow personally and professionally so that you can keep showing up your best self? Yeah, I think for me, I try to be very involved in the local bar association community. I, for example, have written a couple articles in recent months, one for the San Francisco Bar Association and one for the Fulbright for Black History Month, just talking about my experiences and my background in history. And for me, it's important to to share my background with people because it keeps me with perspective. Because I think Mm. oftentimes I've had experiences where people who don't know me will assume I'm not first generation. And I think there's a power in like, you know, opening up the dialogue to say like, no, like you don't have to be born with a silver spoon in your mouth to achieve things in this country. It's a lot easier, of course, if you have that silver spoon. But 
there's those of us out there who haven't had that and we're still working hard to better ourselves at our communities. And I also, for me, really have a high value for mentorship. Mm. I work in my law school and I work with my undergrad to mentor first-generation professionals. And I give them advice that I wish I had known going through the process years ago. And for me, it's just like really refreshing to like share what I know thus far in my career with those who are coming after me. I remember I went to Mills College, just a college in Oakland, a small liberal arts all women's college. And I gave a talk a few weeks ago on being a first-gen uh, lawyer and professional. And there is this freshman there, this amazing African-American woman from Philadelphia. And she asked me a question. And her question started out by saying, now that you've made it. And I was like, it's so funny. From her perspective, I have made it. Mm -hmm. In my perspective, I have not made it by any means. But just knowing that, like, from my positionality, I can, like, be a place of inspiration, a place of hope for people who are coming after me. And to remember that and to, like, cultivate that. Because you'd be surprised, you notice as well, how many people don't mentor people and how many people don't, like, give back to communities and really invest in them. And I never want to be in that number. So for me, like, I experience, I think, personal growth, professional growth, do just, like, sharing my experience with people. Because it's true, like, being a lawyer can be stressful. Being in these spaces that are culturally very different from where I grew up in can be, you know, not easy to navigate sometimes, but by sort of stepping out those bubbles and, and remembering that there are people who wish they were in your circumstance that you can give the guidance to, I think really helps keep me in perspective and keeps me grounded as I go through my career. Absolutely, absolutely. And I say that just understanding, again, the power of modeling and the fact that you got it from someone, but then to go back and give it to someone else is how you move the generations forward, how you move a community mm -hmm. forward, and how you move with people forward. And it's, I know that, again, you have the religious studies background, and I know that, you know, God is a really big part of your life. Let's just go there. So mm -hmm. even thinking about <laughs> what it means to, to go back and help the people, how to say, you know, you can feed a man, but if you teach him how to fish, you know, he exactly. can get abundantly more. So the fact that it's still in you to go back and to serve in such a way is powerful because it's about being hope for someone else. I think that's what our journeys are about and our struggles are about as well. It's not always for us as much as it's for helping other people figure out how to get through. So I'm mm -hmm. definitely a fan of, of you saying that because um, a lot of times I think about what we're going through. You know, as a people right now, I guess it's kind of hard to avoid talking about it, but I don't think it's for us. I think it's for the generations that are coming to be able to tell yeah. them how to survive and how to be better and how to react and to just, you know, be conscious. So, so, so much power in that. Yeah. But I know we're kind of getting toward the end and I'm like, gosh, I don't want to be at the end right now because I'm really <laughs> enjoying this conversation. But um, just, you know, just one or two other quick things I'd like to know from you. Is there anything on your bookshelf that you've read or are reading that you'd like for us to know about that we need to get our hands on? Oh, that is a great question. So I recently just finished reading Homegoing. I wish I pronounced the last name. <laughs> Love the author. But she's this amazing woman of color um, based in Berkeley, California. And it's this book that's about two sisters one, and it goes back to the 1800s, and it's um, fiction, but it kind of goes through historical things that actually happened in real life. About two sisters, one was sold into North American transatlantic slave trade, and one stayed in Ghana. And so each chapter is going back and forth between the two regions, going forward in the timeline, showing sort of what happened through colonialism and through Jim Crow 
and all the things that have happened in our country to African-Americans and in Africa and under the colonial rule of Europeans. And it's been amazing to read this book because it just really grounds you and and being connected with the greater diaspora of our people. And it's been really impactful in these times to like think about that unity in the face of all the adversity we're facing. Awesome, awesome. So my favorite question of all to ask, if there is one thought that you can leave us with to carry with us for the rest of our lives, to remember you by any thought, any quote, anything, what would that be? Hmm. I would say never be afraid to dream big. I feel like that's been kind of the testament I've had since childhood. Always dreaming big, even when, like, logically I shouldn't have been. And, like, never letting people tell you no. I remember, (laughs) so for Yale, for example, you need to get a lot of recommendation from your guidance counselor, which at a large public high school is just, like, not a thing. Like, your guidance counselor doesn't know you. I was lucky because I was a part of a extracurricular group that was headed by my guidance counselor. So she kind of knew me a little bit. And so I had to go to her and say, hey, I need you to write this letter of recommendation for me to get into Yale. And she's like, oh, that, that's not likely. Like, you, you can't get into Yale. I'm like, okay, thank you for your opinion, but I still need to write that letter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> I was like, your like lack of belief is not going to stop my destiny. And so she wrote the letter and it was a positive one. And so for me, it's, it's always been that, that struggle to, and every step of the way where people tell you no, and you're like, no, I have a dream and I believe I'm going to see goodness in the land of the living. And you're going to partner with me, even if you have your doubts, because like your doubts are not going to constrain my future. And that's when every step of the way from getting to Yale to Berkeley and pursuing clerkships to the Fulbright, I've had people every step of the way say, you can't do it. That's unlikely. And I just have to say, no, I have a dream and I'm going to press on until I see it come to fruition. And so for me, if I had a mantra, I would want to encourage people is to, yeah, dream big and like don't let people and their reasonable doubts curtail your hopes and goals. You know, I'm going to just stand up and do a round of applause in the house by myself. (laughs) That, yeah, that's real. Never, ever let anybody, you know, steer you away from that and dream big. And it's never too big, right? Never too big. Never too big. Because first-gen, single-parent home from where again? In L.A., South Central? Yeah. And you've been to 30 countries and you're just 30? And working for (laughs) a top law firm? Listen, listen, I say say it back for emphasis, you know, because there's somebody who wants a dream and doesn't even believe it. And here you are. (laughs) Look at you now and Mm -hmm. living in the Bay Area. Like, wow, what a dream. And, and I say that to you, and and because I've said, oh my god, I, I, I I've been in all thirty. I'm like you're just thirty. <laughs> it's not like you <laughs> fifty three or something. Because it takes some people all of their lives to get there, and that's not a bad thing. But mm-hmm. your hustle and your vision and your belief, you know, belief is a game changer. And because you believed and because you worked, those things have manifested in your life. And it's nice to see. So to be the proof for that person who needs it, especially being a black male in 2020. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But awesome, awesome. Well, I am so glad that we had you here um, today. Thank you for for your life, for your for your passion, for your wisdom, for 
what you do each and every day and for how you're changing lives in ways that you probably don't even imagine. We, as a family, first-gen family, are here to support you in all the days ahead in whichever ways are possible. So, you know, thank you for being here, Antonio. Wishing you well. Thanks for having me. You're so, so very welcome. So, so very welcome.